0: Father, this is your time. It's not our time, Father. Help me and help this congregation to use this time as good stewards, understanding that you've given us this time. Father, may we return it to you in worship. Father, may I rightly divide this word of truth, being careful to be accurate because it is your word and not my own. May this congregation, this body here this morning, listen closely and intently because these are your words, the holy God. We will be looking at your text. This is no small thing, God. Please help us to draw near to you. And Father, we pray that you would fulfill your promise to draw near to us as we do so. That is in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. For those of us here this morning who are adults, I think it's safe to say that as children, we all had a person or persons we wanted to be like. Think of who it was for you. For you, it could have been a sports icon, right? The guy who is best at hitting home runs or the guy who is best at scoring touchdowns. Or for you, it may have been the television star who was the best at making people laugh. Or the TV cop who was the best at busting heads and throwing thugs in the jail. Whatever it was for you. It could have been a writer who you wanted to be like because he or she crafted words the best. Or maybe you wanted to be like one of your aunts or uncles because they were the best at having fun. Most of our heroes... As children were our heroes because they were good at something, and we wanted to be good at that something too. But how many of our childhood heroes did we want to be like because they were good at loving people, even their enemies? Most of our childhood heroes had qualities that we wanted to have for our own recognition and applause. We wanted to be like them for our own glory. But loving someone sacrificially doesn't get a whole lot of recognition in this world. So as children, our heroes were people who excelled in the ways, in ways that the world thought was remarkable. Well, now that you've grown up, I hope that you still have people that you want to be like. But I also hope that what you're looking for in a person to be like is different than before. I hope you want to be like men and women who love the best and who love like God. Beyond all else, I want you to be like God because he is perfect in love. And while you've wanted to be like a lot of different people in your life, you were not made to be like any of them. There's no person that you were made to be like except for Jesus. You are made to be like God. In Genesis 1, through 27, we discover that God made us in his image. And in doing so, he set a pattern for us to follow. And as we love like our father in heaven loved us, then we'll be following this pattern. And this morning, I, we're going to explore the love of the father because it's the same love that we need to be emulating. And so this morning I want to turn in your Bibles. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're coming to our last text in the Sermon on the Mount, or not in the Sermon on the Mount, but in chapter five of the Sermon on the Mount. So turn with me to Matthew chapter five. We're going to be going through verses 43 through 48. So turn to Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Now, this morning we come to this final text in chapter five, and it's the final passage where Jesus corrects the Pharisees' false interpretation of God's law. right He's been doing this for the last uh, five examples in the previous weeks we've looked at these different examples where he is showing that the Pharisees had been practicing and teaching that the law was merely external, and could therefore be kept fully and perfectly. And they were also taking individual laws and tailoring them to fit their own sinful desires while ignoring God's intent for each of those laws. And as we've also been learning, Jesus is revealing the reality of God's law and he's showing his audience, he's also showing us today that we cannot obey God's law ourselves. We can't do it. Left to ourselves, we have no hope of... Obeying God's law. Left to ourselves, we have no hope because of this. Just as it was impossible for Jesus' audience, who he's preaching to, to fulfill the law, it's also impossible for us. We, you know, we, we may have blazed new trails in technology and medicine and science, but that has not fixed the sin problem, has it? It still exists. In every human heart, we still suffer from this sin problem. And the only remedy for sin is still just the righteousness of the sermon or the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. The remedy for this sin problem is the righteousness of Christ. Still the only remedy. And uh, this remedy we receive when we crawl to Jesus humbled by our own wickedness, we cry out for his mercy, believing that his life and death and resurrection are sufficient to save us from all our sins. That's when we receive this righteousness. Then and only then will you be able to live out the Sermon on the Mount because then you will be a new creature in Christ. And as a new creature in Christ, you have new desires and new abilities so that you can live for him. We've got the capacity now in Christ. And at that point, the Sermon on the Mount becomes a guide for us. Not a new law that we uh, we try to follow legalistically to earn favor in God's sight. No, the Sermon on the Mount then becomes a guide for us to be loyal subjects of King Jesus. So let's look at the text for this morning. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Jesus says, do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Here's how this text is broken down. We, we see Jesus giving a command to us and then two reasons why we should obey that command. That's kind of the structure of the text. He gives us a command and he gives us two reasons why we should obey that command. So what, what is the command? The command is to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the reasons are so that you will be like your father in heaven and so that you will be set apart from the world. So that's what we're going to be exploring this morning. So let's look at the command first. As with the previous five um, laws that Jesus expounds, Jesus here uses the, you've heard it said, but I say to you theme. He introduces the Pharisees teaching with, you have heard it said, you've heard it said by the Pharisees. And then he corrects it by saying, but I say to you, thus claiming ultimate authority is God in doing so. It's his law. He's going to interpret it correctly. Don't listen to the Pharisees, listen to me. I'm God, it's my law. So he corrects their interpretation. So how had the Pharisees misinterpreted the law to love your neighbor? Two ways. First of all, the Pharisees left something out of the law to love your neighbor, okay? They forgot that little part on the end that says, as yourself, okay? do You see that here in, in verse 43? You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's no as yourself there. They left that part out. But in the law of God, in Leviticus 19, 18, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, God said. The Pharisees Pharisees conveniently left this part out because it meant that they would have to show others the same honor and respect that they had reserved for themselves and their egos. And you know what? Their egos would not allow them to do that. It it would not allow them to show that kind of love and respect for people who were their enemies. So they took something out, the as-yourself part, but they also added something. Right, they added something to the law as well. The command to hate your enemies—it's not in God's law. The command to hate your enemies is not in God's law. I was confused when I read this, uh, you know, earlier on in my faith. I would read this text and I thought that God was contradicting Himself because I knew that we were supposed to love our enemies. But I thought, well, did God ever say we're supposed to hate our enemies? Did He really say that? It sounded like He God was contradicting Himself. Well. It turns out that command was never in the law of God to begin with. They added it there. See, because they they added it because in their thinking, if it was true that we must love our neighbor, then the opposite must also be true, that we need to hate our enemies. If you love your neighbor, then it must also be true that you hate your enemies. That's the way they thought. That was how they justified it. And so in doing that, they, they felt like they were justified in acting out their sinful desires. With the addition of hate your enemies, the Pharisees were able to continue to hate anyone who wasn't a Jew and feel as if they were still in God's favor. And the will of God, church, loving your neighbor includes loving your enemies. Jesus makes that clear here, but also in the story that we know so well, the Good Samaritan. He also makes it clear in the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke 10, 30 through 37. What happens there? A Jewish man is, is robbed. He's stripped. He's beaten and he's left half dead on the road. A priest approaches him, passes by another side, right? A Levite approaches him, passes by on the other side, leaves him there. Then finally, a Samaritan whose kind hated Jews did everything that was necessary to ensure that this man is helped and cared for at his own expense, the point of the story then, then is to be a neighbor to everyone, even if that person is your enemy. We also see this mindset in the, uh, the life of David. Okay? Uh, do you remember when Saul was pursuing David to kill him because he was filled with such jealous rage? Well, while Saul's pursuing David, David goes and hides out in this cave. Remember this story? And uh, Saul's pursuing his life, doesn't know David's in the cave. And so what does he do? He goes in to the cave to use the facilities, all right? And David and his entourage are in that cave. And so Saul goes in there by himself, and you'd think anybody else would be like, God wants me to kill this guy. He's given me the perfect opportunity. Now's my chance. But he doesn't do that. He cuts off a piece of his robe. And even later on in the text, his conscience thwarts him because of that. He feels guilty because he even cut off part of his robe. And what does he end up saying? He says, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord. Speaking of Saul, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. He showed this same kind of loving your enemy mindset that we see here present in the command that Jesus is giving. It's so much easier though to do the things, do things the way the Pharisees did them. So much easier to do things that way, right? Why do, we, why do we find it so hard to love our enemies, to obey this command? I, I'm tempted to think that it's because we don't, want to, um, uh, we don't want to give someone something that they don't deserve, or it's because we uh, want someone to learn their lesson, and that may be part of it, It may be part of it, but uh, you and I would be much quicker to love someone else's enemy, wouldn't we? We'd be much quicker to love somebody else's enemy before our own. And other people's enemies, they don't deserve love, and, and other people's enemies need to learn their lessons too. I think the reason why we find it so hard to love our enemies is because they are our enemies, okay? And they have wronged us. It's about us. We make it about us. And we love ourselves more than we love anyone else. So we are, we are directly offended. And it's hard for us to love them because we love ourselves. That's why it's not near as hard to love someone else's enemy. It, it, it's true that we love to hate our enemies because we love ourselves and they haven't loved us the same. You know what I'm saying? We love to hate our enemies because we love ourselves most of all and our enemies haven't loved us the way we've loved us. And don't think that you don't have anything to learn from this text because you don't have any enemies, okay? Everybody has enemies, okay? It, it doesn't, there, your enemy doesn't have to be someone that is pursuing your life to kill you. right. It doesn't have to be like an arch nemesis whose goal in life is to smite you from this earth. Okay. It doesn't have to be that. Like we get that mentality from like uh, movies and cartoons and stuff. It's like this, this person exists for your demise. Listen, uh, somebody who is an enemy can be someone who makes a snide remark to you, an off color remark to you, or someone who criticizes you a little too much. Or it could be someone who's impatient with you or or simply disagrees with you. An enemy can be someone who you have feelings of hatred toward, not because of anything they've done to you, but because of who they are. An enemy can be someone who hasn't done something for you that you expect them to do. This text applies to everybody, church, because everybody has enemies. So what does loving our enemies mean for us? Well, loving your enemies, let me make this distinction. Loving your enemies is not the same as liking your enemies, okay? I think the reason why we see this as so hard at times is because we think liking is the same as loving. No, it's not. Liking your enemies is not the same as loving your enemies. The Greek word that is used here is agape, okay? Many of you know what agape means. The, The Greek word for love, agape, is the word used for the love that God has for us, it is the love that seeks and works to meet another's highest welfare. According to John MacArthur, agape love, listen, listen to this distinction. Agape love may involve emotions, but must involve action. Okay. Uh, agape love may involve emotions, but it must involve action and actions we choose to do. It's a, it's an, a part of our will. It's a. It's something that we don't have to feel good about doing. We can choose to do it. <clears throat> have you ever stopped yourself from pursuing someone's welfare because you didn't like the person at the time and felt as though to show them love would be hypocritical? You ever, you ever done that before? Like, I, well, I don't want to. If I did that, it would seem like I really liked the person, and I don't really like the person, so I'm not going to do it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Jesus is not commanding us here to like our enemies. He's commanding us to love our enemies. Liking someone is, uh, is more to feel an emotion toward this person, but to love someone is an act of the will. Whether or not you like someone should not determine whether or not you pursue his or her highest welfare. Okay? Whether or not you like someone should not determine whether you should seek the highest welfare for that person. Can you imagine having to like someone in order to forgive him? Can you imagine having to like someone in order to forgive him? I'm sure you've heard stories of families who have lost a loved one due to a drunk driver. You've heard these stories? Well, if you've heard those stories, I'm sure you've also heard stories where those families that have lost a loved one due to a drunk driver have also forgiven that drunk driver. Is Jesus saying that we need, that family needs to like the drunk driver in order to forgive the drunk driver? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, because love is an act of the will. We can willingly choose to pursue someone's welfare even if we don't like them. We can obey this by God's grace. Now, this love does start in the heart and it moves out into actions toward your enemy. Uh, which means that you must love your enemy with your attitude and with your deeds, your attitude and your deeds, okay? So you can't pull the angry brother made to hug attitude, you know, so that you're technically obeying, right? I, whenever I was a kid and I would I would, uh, I would say something ugly to my sister, my parents, uh, every once in a while, they'd make me kiss her on the cheek, okay? And you... you you, that, there's nothing you can do that is, is more annoying to like a seven-year-old boy than have him go kiss his sister on the cheek. And so what, what do you do? You do it begrudgingly. You kind of put your, you know, kind of kick the ground, you know, like this. And you come over and do it real quick, and you kind of run over to the other side of the room. So it's, it's not an attitude. There's no loving attitude about it, but maybe it's technically obeying the action of love. But this, this commandment is attitude and action also important to note this. Last week, we're talk, when we were talking about turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, right? Giving your coat also. We were talking about grace being extended beyond that which was asked of you. Grace extended beyond that was asked of you. But here, Jesus is commanding us to love actively, even when we're not asked. We're to love even when we're not asked for something, This means that we need to make opportunities to love our enemies instead of simply waiting for the opportunities to fall in our lap. This also means that you can't just ignore your enemies and think because you're not wringing their neck that you're loving them. Right? We we tend to think that way. Like, Well, you know, I don't have him pinned on the ground right now, so I'm loving him. Okay, that's not true. This is active love, choosing to with your hands applying love to this person's life. So, so write the encouraging letter, church. So pursue conversation with that person when that person doesn't expect you to. Don't wait for someone else to step up and help that person if they're in need. We didn't want to do that. Well, I'm kind of I'm coming at odds with that person right now. So somebody somebody will provide that need for them. Somebody will step up. You know. No, forget that. Do it right? Uh, Seek reconciliation with that person instead of waiting for him to make the first move. Or would it be so crazy to suggest that you invite that person over for dinner? I mean, is that beyond us? Okay. Is is that something that God, God would do, that Jesus would do? Or like Jesus commands us here, you could pray for that person. You could pray for that person. You know, this may be one of the hardest ways to love your enemies. Because it's 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 easy, it's somewhat easy to be cordial with the people that you have a problem with, you know, and act like everything's okay. So really, there's there's the waters aren't rough between the two of you, and you can kind of you know say hello and smile and every, act like everything's okay, and there's no real conflict on the surface. But to pray for a person who is your enemy, well, you got to put your heart into that. You got to put your heart into that. Because you know that God answers prayers, you know? So what if God saves this person? Or what if God blesses this person? That That would be difficult to deal with, right? Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus who, in the face of the soldiers who were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They were crucifying him and he prayed for them. It would be hard, it would be, This is why loving our enemies requires remembering that we were God's enemies. If we're going to love our enemies, we need to remember that we were God's enemies before we came to Christ. Were you listening to the scripture that I read before uh, we sang Romans 5, 6 through 11? I hope so, but if not, I'm going to give you another opportunity. Turn to Romans 5, 6 through 11 with me, please. Let's look at this text to help us. Remember that we are God's enemies. Romans 5, 6 through 11. I just want you to kind of peruse this text with me. It may be my favorite text in the whole Bible, favorite paragraph in the whole Bible. So look with me and identify the words that are used to describe us. Okay, let's look together. The words that are used to describe us. Verse six, helpless. Same verse, ungodly. Verse eight, sinners. Verse 10, enemies. Doesn't sound too good, does it? It doesn't sound very appealing to hear our us described in this way. Now, in, in, in spite of those descriptions, what does God do? What does God do in spite of who we are? Verse six, look, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse nine, justified by his blood and saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, reconciled to God through his death and we shall be saved by his life. Paul's saying here is that, that we would hardly even die for the stand-up guy down the street who consistently does what is right and who helps people. We would rarely die for that guy. But God loved us while we were his enemies. He sent Jesus to die for us when each one of us, a countless number of people, had committed a countless number of sins. And And we make our enemies very easily. Somebody becomes our enemy whenever we hear them make an off-color remark toward us. Or, or say something about our mamas, and they become our enemy, right? They become, they become our enemies so easily, but Jesus died for hordes of people. Hordes of people who sinned against him personally numerous times a day, numerous times an hour. Why do I say this? Why do I bring up this text? I bring it up because bitterness cannot grow in a thankful heart. Bitterness cannot grow in the soil of thankfulness. And so, when you remember that you were God's enemy, saved by grace alone, not because of anything you did or anything you were, it's hard for you to hate when you preach that truth to yourself on a regular basis. Reminding yourself of the gospel will make your heart thankful. And it's really hard to hate when you know God chose not to hate you. God gave up his perfect right to condemn you for your sin. You understand that? He gave up his perfect right to condemn you. And instead he did this. He bound himself to love you forever. You understand that? That's what covenant means. The the covenant through Jesus's blood, God bound himself to love us forever instead of taking his right to condemn us forever. We need to love like God loves. We can only do that by his grace. So we have to lean on him. We have to remind ourselves of his grace so our hearts can be thankful and love people who don't deserve to be loved. Let's turn to now the two points, the two reasons why we should obey this. If we look at verses forty-five through forty-eight, we see uh, these reasons why uh, we should obey the command to love our enemies. And you know, uh, this is just to, to make a small note: this is another reason to praise God. God is not a God who gives us a command and just says, "Just do it." All right, just, just do it. Here's your command: do this. God is is a loving God, and so He's given us reasons why we should obey too. He didn't just say, "Do it," and leave, you know, like like um, you know, sometimes we'll tell Peter. Uh, Peter, you need need to go pick up those toys. Why? Just do it, you know? But God says, he gives us reasons. It would be enough if he just commanded us to, but he gives us reasons why, to encourage us and help us. So let's look at verse 45 for our first reason why we ought to obey. Let's turn back to Matthew 5. He says, so that, obey this command, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is not saying here that by obeying the command to love your enemies, you are making yourself God's sons and daughters, okay? As if we earned that right, as if we earned that position. No, we don't, we don't earn that He's, what he's saying is that loving our enemies gives evidence that we are God's sons and daughters. It's evidence. We're showing ourselves to be his sons and daughters because God himself loves his enemies. We're being like him when we love our enemies. Sometimes after uh, I say something to Carrie, I'll say something to Carrie, and uh, she'll say, okay, Doug. What, what does that mean? Well, my father's name is Doug. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? And she says, that's just what your father would say. Right? like father, like son. When we love our enemies, we're being like our heavenly father. Because he sends down the grace, the common graces of rain and the sun. Now, it's obvious from this text that, God, uh, that uh, Jesus is saying God loves his enemies. Okay? The, uh, the people that are living wicked lives in sin that should be t- in hell. He, he gives them common graces. He, you know, not only does he give them rain in the sun, he gives them jobs, some families, right? So just, I want to speak to something briefly uh, because I've heard some wrong theology on different sides of the love of God, on the issue of the love of God. Concerning this truth, let me speak to the Calvinistically minded believers like myself. And let me also speak to anyone who may believe that God only loves everyone all the time, Okay. I have heard these Calvinists say that God loves Christians only. God only loves Christians and no, one, and no one else because the Christians are covered by the blood of Jesus. And I've heard other people claim that God doesn't hate anyone. Both are untrue. Both are untrue. The heart of God is more complex than that. It's more complex than that. There are verses like Psalm 5, 5 and 6, which say of God, you hate all who do iniquity and the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So there is a sense in which God hates unbelievers and not even just their sins. But then there are verses like verses 44 and 45 of our text in which uh, makes it clear that there is a sense in which God loves all wicked people or else he could not give them the common graces of the benefits of the sun and the rain. So God both loves and hates unbelievers. We cannot be reductionists who leave out one side of an argument because it doesn't make much sense in our minds or because it rubs us the wrong way. we got to be biblical Christians, church. What does the Bible say? That's what we need to do. Not to what did these people say and what did these people say. What does the Bible say? Let me be clear, however, that this text does not mean that God loves unbelievers as much as he loves believers not what it's saying. He does not not love unbelievers as much as he loves believers because believers have been united with Christ by faith so that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. That's amazing. He loves us as much as he loves Jesus because we're united with him and his death and resurrection through faith. What this text is saying, church, is that God does not condition his love like we do. God does not condition his love like we do. We love people based on whether or not they love us, based on what they can give us, based on whether or not they are lovable, or whether or not they like us, or whether or not they are like us. Because he loves them, God gives common grace to even the most wicked human beings on the face of the planet. God had every right to end the human race right when Adam and Eve sinned. Do you realize that? He had the perfect right to end it all. Right then, Adam and Eve sinned, he could have ended it, but he didn't. He didn't. He's been pouring out copious amounts of grace on evil people all throughout history, many of whom never repented and never trusted in Jesus. How can he do this? How can God do this? He can do this because his love is determined by his will. His love is determined by his will and not the loveliness of the object of his love. That's You got to get that. He can do this because he chooses to love, not because the object of his love is lovable or lovely. Jesus is commanding us to be like God in the way that we love And God does not need the object of his love to be lovable or worthy of that love. Again, love is not the same as like. God chose us to love, God chose to love us when we were unlovely. Let's bring it back to us. We're recipients of the gospel, right? God chose to love us when we were unlovely. This shows the magnificent glory of God because when you look at the object of his love, us? You don't see any reason why a holy God would choose us. You know, we, we tend to replace the word like with love, don't we? Take the word like, and we replace it with love in our expressions, our everyday conversations, so that someone will say something like, I love the buffalo wings at Chili's. I love the buffalo wings at Chili's. Well, this doesn't say much about the person who made the statement, does it? It says more about what the person says he loves or likes. That statement doesn't make you want to get to know the person who said it. It makes you want to get to know the buffalo wings he's talking about. You understand? You want to get over to Chili's and order some wings when someone says something like that. This love... Is, a, is really a, a strong like, right? It's a strong like that the buffalo wings have merited by virtue of their tastiness. This is a far cry from the love that God has for his enemies, church. God's love is a willful decision to do good things to his enemies. Not because his enemies are good or lovely, but because he is good and lovely. When we choose to do the same thing, show our enemies love, what are we doing? When we choose to do that, we are showing ourselves to be like him. We're showing ourselves to be his sons and daughters. And you know what? It becomes an opportunity for us to share the gospel. Because when you love somebody who is your enemy you choose to do that, not because you like them, but because you w- want to be obedient to God, you want to honor God, what happens? It, it doesn't point back to you. I say, like, oh man, this, this guy is so great. No, you don't use that opportunity to give yourself glory. You use that opportunity to say, I love because I was loved. I love because I was loved. And it wasn't because of who I am. It was in spite of my status as his enemy. It becomes an opportunity for gospel conversation, gospel telling. Say, I only love because I was loved and in spite of my enemy status. So that's one reason. We want to be like God. We want, to be, we want to show ourselves to be sons and daughters of God, and that's why we love our enemies. Number two, another reason why we need to love our enemies. Verses 46 and 47. Look with me there. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is saying that even unbelievers and wicked people love the people who are easy to love. I mean, you really have to try hard to look someone in the eye who just gave you a gift and say, You're dead to me. <laughs> that would be really hard to do, wouldn't it? I mean, it's easy to do that. Wicked people do that. Unbelievers do that. I mean, even the, the most hardened criminals love their mamas, right? Who love them. God's love, the love we're commanded to, is otherworldly. It's otherworldly. It's unique. It's not of this world. God's love is completely unique from the love we receive from others in this world. And one of the things that makes God's love so powerful and unique is who the love is directed towards. The unlovely. The wretched. The undeserving. Us. If we fail to extend love to the unlovely to the wretched and the undeserving, then we are not following the pattern that God has set for us and be bearing his image. That church is not showing the world what God is like, which was, which is what it means to bear his image, showing the world what God is like. Before we came to Christ, we were like everyone else in the way that we loved. Loving those who loved us, loving the people who were easy to love. And in that sense, we were common. We we're common. Like everybody else loves, we were loving like them. But in Christ, we have been made to be uncommon in our love. We have been made to be uncommon in our love, which means we must love sacrificially for those who are not commonly loved. And people don't commonly love their enemies. That's what Paul means when he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed. Behold, new things have come. What, he's, what he means there is that Christ has given us the capacity to do what is not normal for a sinner. We are new creatures in Christ, meaning Christ has given us the capacity to do what is not normal for a sinner. When people... When people walk down the street, they're taking a stroll, and they see a a dog barking at a cat. They may give like a a glance to acknowledge that it's there, but then they keep walking. But if somebody's walking down the street and they see a cat curled up next to a dog and they're ta- taking a nap together, what do they do? They take a picture, and they go to Kinkos and make a calendar. Why? Why do they do that? Because it's uncommon. You see those pictures in calendars because it's uncommon. We love our enemies. When we love our enemies, we show ourselves to be uncommon. Citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. We don't show ourselves to be like this world. We show ourselves to be like our king. You remember what 1 Peter 2.9 says? It's one of our foundational verses here at Calvary Bible Church. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This means that we are made God's people through Jesus' blood so that we would live to promote our king. Nothing promotes our king like loving others as he loves others and then telling them how they can be loved by him too. Nothing proclaims his excellencies like that. Let's conclude here with verse 48. Jesus writes, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's impossible for us to love perfectly as God loves well, that's what we've been saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to show people we cannot keep God's law. We 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 don't have our own righteousness. We're not good. We need the righteousness of Christ in order to be made right with God. And Jesus Christ's blood gives that to us when we believe in it. We believe that He lived and died and rose again for our sins. But we can't can't do that. We can't love perfectly as God loves. That's why we need Christ's righteousness. And we only get that through faith in him. For those here today who trust in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, Jesus has become perfect for you. He was perfect for you. Therefore, God has given you this impossible thing as a gift. He has given you the impossible as a gift. And as a result, you are his children. You are his subjects in his kingdom. He is your king. And now we strive to love as he loves. Not in order to earn his love, but to give him honor as his loyal subjects. That's the goal of our lives, to please God, to please our king. As we then love like God, here's another incentive church, as we love like God, we receive the joy of God. Remember, if you, if you can think back to the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who, blessed are those who, right? We talked about how to be blessed in that way is to receive the joy of God because he is most blessed. Remember in uh, First, First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul calls God the blessed God, or the happy God. As we obey, as we live like God, as we show ourselves to be sons and daughters of God by loving his enemies, loving our enemies, we get his joy. And no one is as happy as God. Turn with me, uh, just one more text, and we'll end on this. John 15, 10 through 11. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Do you see how joy is connected to obedience here? You abide in the love of Christ by obeying his commandments. And you make yourself like him because he obeyed his father. And he tells us this so that we can have fullness of joy. So the fullness of joy that Jesus tells us we can have is in him first. He says, so that my joy may be in you. Obey, be like me as I'm like God so that my joy may be in you. because he obeyed his Father's commandments perfectly. Therefore, as we obey the Father's commandments, which we've seen here in the Sermon on the Mount, we can have the joy of Jesus in us. And no one has ever been as happy as God. No one's ever been as happy as Jesus. We can have that joy. That that should propel us, church, to obey like this, to be like God. That should propel us to love God, and to love God by loving like God, like father, like son. Let's pray. Father, help us not to forget that we were enemies, and now we are your friends, that we were orphans, and now we are your children. That we were once part of the kingdom of darkness. And now we are part of the kingdom of your son. And you have made all of that a reality through Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. And I pray, I want to pray right now. Lord, if there's anybody in here this morning that has not crawled to Jesus, humbled by their sin, Crying out for his mercy by faith. I pray, Lord God, you would bring them to their knees, and draw them to you, make them your own, make them worshipers of you. May they believe, God, by your grace. And for those of us who are saved by your grace and believe, may we live like it. May we show ourselves to be believers. May we show ourselves. To be your children. By loving our enemies as you loved us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together now and take your hymnal. Turn to number 88. Fairest Lord Jesus. Number 88.